Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 19th of July, 2020. And of course, I'm delivering this lecture because I have nothing better to do. Today, we're going to be taking a look at senescence. That is the aging process. Now, I'm doing this for a reason. Everything I do is for a reason. Uh, and the reason is I want to be able to bring this toward a very um, dangerous and lethal type of cancer called glioblastoma. I want to talk to you about the modern current literature on it, uh, some of the clinical aspects, presentations, as well as, of course, most of, most of the pathobiochemistry and pathophysiology associated with that very terrible um, cancer that is specifically associated with neurons in the central nervous system. But for me to be able to get there, I want to lay the groundwork for one of the great contributors of brain degeneration, and that is aging, particularly in the human brain. So that's where we're going. So I'm, I'm going to title this talk and the next several, because I'm starting a new arc. So last time we did a lot on proteases and anti-proteases, and we talked about several kinds of diseases. We talked about pancreatic and hepatic cancer, for example. We also talked towards the end two or three hours or episodes anyway, concerning the coronavirus. We will eventually discuss viruses and central nervous system disorders, um, but we're not going to do that till much later. First, I want to be able to lay this groundwork for senescence in humans, uh, and then, of course, lead into glioblastoma. So again, this is Dr. Daniel Guerra, and you have landed correctly into <clears throat> authentic biochemistry. So how do we look at aging? Well, basically, it is a pursuit of biotemporal transcendence in my way of looking at it. So let's get into my detail here. <clears throat> Here's a general background. Physiological aging doesn't proceed according to a specific genetic program. There is a genetic by environment, by immune component synergy. And there are, of course, a, a host of epigenomic and epigenetic modifications. Those two are distinct. The rate and extent of the aging is individual and it changes with temporal age, stress, and there is an asynchronous periodicity. Complicate matters, the processes that drive aging are often inferred from measurements of organismal lifespan or even just plain longevity, which although clearly related to and determined in part by on the nearly what I would might call ubiquitous process of aging, it may be dissociated from the determinants of aging. We'll get into that. So nevertheless, within this framework, there are several general findings and principles currently which drive the field of what is known as biogerontology in uh, human medicine. So now before I talk more just about 
aging, I want to bring up the fact that we're talking about a phenomena and we're talking phenomena and a specific category of phenomena called the sequential phenomena, which I've generated in my table of phenomena, which I published a few years back. We can use the Latin, and of course I did. I call it the mensam de phenomenus. And the reason I generated this is because I think phenomena, events that is, are meant to be examined by a measure of decision. And I can call those things judgments, if you like. And the kinds of judgments that we make are scientific, logical, temporal, and existential. And I believe each of those coincide to each of the four phenomena that I predicated in my table. And those phenomena are compositional, one, sequential, two, eventual, three, and agentic, four. Now, we're locking in on sequential today because it has to do with aging, you see. So how do we get to that uh, level of significance by using this um, table of phenomena and the sequential phenomena in particular? Well, the sequential phenomena are basically an arithmetic progression. For example, how it is measured as an experience of time. So I think that there are three types or three components of the sequential phenomena. I think first kind is simple. And by that, I mean one event follows the previous and so on. So an example would be splitting wood involves a sequence of contractions and relaxations of muscle myosin and actin filaments. This all requires ATP hydrolysis and of course protein turnover. And, and these are related to the production of NADH, which that the production of that reduced nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide becomes increasingly anoxygenic and ultimately there is fatigue. So you go out, you start splitting wood, the first 15 minutes, the first 20 minutes, first half hour, up to an hour. Maybe your pace increases a little bit depending on the temperature outside and the rate at which you're splitting the wood and the kind of wood you're splitting. Those would also be all different phenomena, right? But ultimately there is this fatigue and the fatigue occurs over time. So that's what I mean about a simple sequence of events, right? That is a phenomenon. Now, the complex sequential, see, that's the simple, the complex sequential phenomena. This is where a series of events occur temporally, but not according to an arithmetic progression. So think about geometrical expansion. That's the simplest one. For example, such as a division of cells, right? So that's a complex sequential phenomena, still temporally ordained. Now, finally, you have my third subcategory for the sequential category of phenomena. And I call that the occult. Now, what does that mean? Occult in the terms of hidden, right? So the occult sequential phenomena are a series of events that occur temporally, but through tracks of ordering, I would uh, say, that are not discernible unless the sequence is finished or may be reversed 
or stopped and then started again. Now, this is the concept of hierarchies and occurrences of scale, such as developmental sequences, and we know these in animal anatomy and physiology. Right? So those are three examples of the three, what I would call sequential components of the phenomena um, that occur in aging. Okay, so now we're, again, we're relating now all three of those, the simple complex and occult types of sequences that result in the aging of, say, a human being are all at play. Okay, so right away you see it's complex. Now, the word senescence comes from the word senex, which means old man, and basically it is deterioration that's associated with the aging of the cell. We also have to consider in senescence that you have a maximum lifespan and not so much a minimum lifespan, right? And the maximum number of years that a specific type of species has been known to survive. And then we're gonna get a mean and a median for that, right? And the range is really tremendous depending on what kind of organisms you're looking at. So like the fruit fly Drosophila, it's uh, maximum lifespan is about 90 days. Whereas humans, the maximum that's actually been recorded and the, it's been shown to be uh, validated is somewhere around 120 to 122 years. Now, there are turtles and lake trout that can live older than us. They've been recorded to live as long as 150 years. And of course, we know trees, uh, especially some of these really large trees out west, they can be thousands of years old. There's a third component of uh, senescence, aging, called survivorship. Now, that's the percentage of survivors in a population according to their age. And that variation is also great. So there's only a very small percentage of wild animals, for example, that ever appreciate or enjoy to or obtain a maximum lifespan. They die because usually nutritional deficiencies or because of predation, depending on what species you're talking about. Also, disease plays a major role in wild animal populations, more so than humans. We're going to get to that later through the SARC, how the medicalization of the human species has altered the rate of sequence of change of that phenomena we call aging or senescence. So survivorship is low for humans, uh, often described for certain underdeveloped countries, but that's not so much the case anymore because the more developed countries, these are all in quotation marks, of course, um, there are new diseases which occur somewhere starting at middle age, and by that I mean in the 50-year 50, 50 range, and these diseases can bring people down earlier than some people in less developed countries because those diseases are associated with the style of life that people lead. For, for example, obesity in the West is a terrible disease, a chronic disease, which is altering lifespan of humans, even with the over post-medicalization era. We'll get into that too um, as we go on. So some of the oldest living species, we know that there is a um, bristlecones pine that's somewhere in the White Mountains of California. And it's at about um, 4,000, almost 670, 75 years old. So it's a really old tree, right? Um, so you get the idea that this tree started growing way before uh, Plato wrote the Republic. 
uh, in fact, thousands of years before Plato was born, and even before the Great Pyramids were made, which were way before Plato was born, right? Plato was writing in the late, uh, well, in the beginning of the third, fourth century BC, so starting at about uh, four, 405 BC and onward to about 350 BC, because, you know, we invert that when we go to time zero, which I always think is interesting. Okay, so you get an idea of some of the, uh, how, how old some living things are. Um, all right, so we can ask the question, are there general laws? Because everyone in science, um, I'm told, is interested in finding general laws. Now, I've been a scientist since I was, I have to admit, probably since I was a kid, because I always tried to understand how things were, how things were doing what they do in living systems, how they grew, how they matured, how flowering occurred, how a seed could turn into a 12-foot-tall sunflower plant, or how seeds could turn into huge trees 100-foot tall, right? Um, and how animals started from very simple mating and turned into something that could be really large, like a, a polar bear or maybe an elephant or even a really large human being. I always thought, found that very intriguing. So I've thought a lot about how developmental processes are related to environmental factors. But at any rate, in general, many sciences, particularly the physical sciences, by that I mean physics and chemistry, are much more interested in finding general laws. And so biologists coming along much later uh, in those natural sciences paradigm, have been trying to do the same thing. And so we have generated concepts which are loosely called laws in biology. And I'm sure you have come across these if you ever took a biology class, and most of you advanced degrees, so I know that you have this concept in mind. Now, let's think about what kind of general concepts, I won't call them laws because I don't think they are laws, general because I don't buy into that paradigm. But anyways, what are some general concepts that explain longevity? Here are a few that I came up with. There's a vast difference in average and maximal lifespan across the animal kingdom. And the differences that span up to five orders of magnitude and range from days to centuries. That's one observation that we can make. Second, these differences in average and maximal lifespan depend upon a developmental genetic program that appears to direct growth, differentiation, reproductive capacity, all of those, and then finally, so in essence, all those within a specific species. Third, we can say there are loose correlations between lifespan and both anatomical and physiological features, such as the adult finished size, such as mass and height, and of course, basal metabolic rate. Now this suggests that there are fundamental mechanisms. So right away, we can make a correlation to one of our basic concepts. There seem to be fundamental biochemical and physiological mechanisms but they are by no means, and by the, and adding to that corollary, a subcorollary, these fundamental mechanisms are by no means a fixed event, ontology. 
So that leaves the published literature lacking really general principles all told. And it serves as a rule to measure lifespan with I would call a physiological yardstick, but not really one that is based on biochemistry or on anything beyond organ development and tissue aging. And at the biochemical and molecular level, the lack of cell division and the um, deterioration of some components of the immune system, okay, which I talked a great deal about in my lectures. And we'll hit on it, don't worry, here as well. So at first glance, it looks like there are no permeant biological laws that even help give us a definition of lifespan according to in particular endophenotype, such as biochemical pathways and physiological responses. And none of those seem to point to anything, even bioenergetics or immunity, or even a strict chronicity. Right? But we have a general concept. We know that there is, a, again, a longevity. We you know there seems to be a maximum lifespan, not just for an individual human species, but also for cell division. We do find this when we go looking for it. So people have looked for what can enhance lifespan and what seems to limit it. One of the things that has come up many times, and you'll see this in nutritional studies and also in pathophysiology associated with obesity, is caloric restriction. So caloric restriction seems to postpone the aging of some cell types. One of the most reliable ways to prolong life, for example, in a lab mouse or even rat or rabbit is to restrict calories. So these studies have been done ever since the 1960s and they've been done over and over and over again. I won't bore you with the exact data. I'll just give you generalizations. It's pretty straightforward. These would be some concepts that I, that I say permeate the literature on senescence. I don't mean that they're steadfast and constant rule or actually a rule that can turn into a law, but they are observations which seem to occur and therefore we get comfortable thinking of them as always happening, but there are always uh, differences depending on individuals, right? So when you we take a rat and you maintain them on a low caloric diet, like say up to half of what another rat population would get, but anyway down to maybe 15% of the normal ration for a rat on a daily basis. So if you keep them on a really low diet, the animals will become much, much smaller, uh, and the smaller in mass, lower in mass, lower also, uh, smaller also in length, for example. So total body mass and, and all of the measures that we make on body mass are limited. They get, they, they are decreased down to about maybe 15% of what the median size of the animal is. We don't get below that unless we're talking about mutations involving dwarfism. Um, and that's a different thing altogether than aging and caloric restriction. So 15% seems to be about the limit in rat and mouse studies. But when you get animals down to this much lower body mass and overall uh, 
body size and stature, you only get about a 50% increase, which is still a lot in lifespan. So you compare taking down the diet down to say a third of normal calories. So just caloric restriction, maintaining good nutritional balance all the way, but just keeping it isocaloric according to what the essentials are. And you compare that to ad libitum fed rats, you're going to get only about a doubling of the lifespan. So if they normally live, say, one year, you might get animals to live two years, but they'll be much smaller animals. Now, remember, these are in a laboratory. So they're not being exposed to, say, predation. So one could assume that some of that size um, dimorphism, small versus large, for example, might mete out some kind of survivorship based on whether or not the animal can move faster, whether or not the animal's muscles are developed adequately. So severe caloric restriction in a laboratory setting where there are no external exogenous pressures that could select against that particular animal in a given environment are not going to be there. So you've removed that selection process. Now, in a way, that's similar to humans, right? Because we have agriculture, so we're not out there fending from the wild on a daily basis of hunting and gathering. We have uh, learned about fire, so we can cook food, so even spoil food uh, can be rendered somewhat edible and not dangerous, and we can cook it and preserve it longer after it's cooked. Um, the other aspect, of course, is freezing. We've learned because probably much of human development, at least in the European strain of humans, occurred where the climate changes, right? Very warm summers, very cold winters, maybe very long winters, like during the ice ages. And this would then require people to be able to um, learn that freezing can also preserve food, right? But after we learned and developed agriculture, we've removed ourselves at least one complete octave from living in the wild. Because once we learn agriculture, we could select for given plant species and animal species that we were using in our diet and breed for desirable characteristics that would make the animals, say, with a higher rate of gain and the rate of gain more in muscle than in fat, for example. And this is indeed what ancient farmers did with our livestock, like with sheep and goats, and then eventually um, cattle and hogs and any other animals that were used in farming. Same thing with plants, a selection process before any conventional breeding or even like old fashioned, just crosses were understood and how you can develop things like hybrid vigor by crossing to quite different genetic backgrounds within a given species. That's what hybrid vigor is, for example, in corn genetics. We learned that if we did a selection of different seeds from plants, for example, larger seeds or ones that ripen a little earlier so they don't kill, get killed by the frost, that if we select for those more viable seeds, which of course are going to be the next generation of the plant, that not only are there, there might be more edible biomass there, but the seeds, when you plant them and grow them back out, those plants are going to grow from those seeds and therefore you're going to maintain that phenotype. So the ancients were learning genotype, phenotype associations. So that kind of agricultural modification, again, 
is more like taking a lab animal, restricting their calories and looking how long they live uh, based on how much you can decrease their body mass and yet still survive and go through a developmental sequence, presumably through reproductive capability as well. So these studies are not without some utility. That's what I'm saying. Now, back to the animal models that have been done. If the restriction of caloric intake is started later in life, so rather than starting it right after weaning, but onwards in these animal models, it, it still appears to have the same outcome. So lifespan is only extended about 20%, but still it's extended. So it appears that the aging process will allow for caloric restriction to increase longevity in this animal model. Again, similar, if you think about it, to humans that were now agriculturally based and we have mass agriculture and we have mass production of food and ready attainment of nutritional foods. Um, the best you can probably get in the animal models is a 20%, not a 50% increase if the caloric restriction is done after reproductive phase in the animal models. So in humans, that would just presumably be once puberty is reached or certainly not much farther after that. So it seems to be that caloric restriction from birth will give you a longer lifespan than caloric restriction as you, as you age. Okay. Now, of course, this hasn't been done under discrete randomized controlled trials because it would require following human cohorts throughout life. We have, though, a lot of anecdotal information about starving populations that were starving, say, because of a war or a famine, and then refeeding them later in life, getting them back to full nutritional competency. And we have followed some of these um, cohorts of people, if you want to call them that. And, and it's particularly recently, like after World War II, and I'll get into that, there have been some really interesting and somewhat provocative results about uh, what happens with people when they grow uh, up having a limitation of caloric intake, and then later on they're given a plenum of calories and what happens to their lifespan. So you might be kind of surprised when I tell you what the results uh, have been shown with humans. But right now I just want you to say, I want to say that food-restricted rats also, according to these studies, have showed a less evidence of cancers, spontaneous cancers, less evidence, of course, of what you might consider in humans as an extrapolation, atherosclerosis. And interestingly, food-restricted rats from early age also seem to be a, have a decrease in autoimmune disease. So the question you might ask is, why does restriction of calories delay senescence? And the underlying mechanisms are being studied, but they're basically pretty unclear. Okay, we still don't really know. In fact, there's even a sexual dimorphism. So with females, you know, in humans, females live longer than males. And if you restrict the diet in the rodent model, the females, by the way, do live longer than males also in the rodent model. This might have to do with differences in estrogen and testosterone, muscle development, the production of reactive oxygen, all things I'm going to get into, by the way. Um, more mutations in DNA during replication. Other That seems to be 
more in male and female uh, in certain systems. But uh, nevertheless, in the rat model, you do see a dietary restriction increasing the lifespan of female over male that are otherwise already living longer, like say between 30 months and 40 months. However, the enhanced lifespan in the female is not nearly as tremendous as the enhanced lifespan in the male that the caloric restriction is applied. So there's a sexual difference even during the aging process itself. Now, one of the things we know about caloric restriction uh, in the animal models, this is just a hint of where we're going to get into this, is you get an increase in the level of enzymes that break down reactive oxygen. Okay, So hydrogen peroxidases and oxidases and enzymes like catalase and glutathione reductase, glutathione peroxidase, those enzyme activities appear higher in the hepatic and in the kidney tissues of caloric restricted rodent models. Okay, so that might have something to do with it as well, because we know reactive oxygen can lead to DNA, RNA, and protein degradation. So I'm going to stop there and um, bye for now.